Hot Pod Turns 5 on this episode of Always Listening. Welcome to Always Listening. We're your hosts. I'm Joel. I'm Jay, and I am podcastually frustrated. <laughs> and as you hear, I am I am broncally frustrated. I oh my uh, the the silent killer that you had last week, Jay, has transferred across mm. the wires uh, and has been. Uh, 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 funking up my house for the last few days. I will say this: I'm counting my chickens because um, I are in my blessings. I should say, I just have a cold. My wife and my daughter both have strep throat. Uh, yeah. Ooh. So strep throat is a thing that I just don't. I don't think I've ever gotten it. I don't think I've ever gotten it. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I used to get strep throat all the time, which is odd because I still have my tonsils at 45 mm-hmm. years old. Uh. And I used to get strep all the time. They never removed them. I don't know why. They just never did. So, yeah, uh, I would like to get them removed because I've since gotten fat. But then people tell me, you know what? Instead of removing your tonsils, why don't you just lose some weight, fatty? And I'm like, you know what? You're 100% right. <laughs> so, Che, we, I, I mentioned last week that our, our hope was this week to discuss uh, things to remember when moving your media host. However... I didn't finish writing that blog post. Uh, I've got a live stream going on this week for my iPad podcasting course, which, by the way, uh, there is a link in the show notes for that. You can take advantage of some cheap sale pricing if you'd like to uh, jump on board, even if you missed out on the uh, Podcasters Toolkit, which it was a part of earlier this year. However, Nick Quad did write a great blog post. And while he did great show yeah, prep for well, us. Well, look, I don't always <laughs> love everything that Nick has to say. There's a lot in this that I don't agree with, but it was interesting. It was noteworthy. It was commentatable. And so we're going to be talking basically about one article today. It is a little bit noteworthy that, that Hot Pod has been around for five years now. Nick Qua, Nicholas Qua is, uh, would you say he's the noted podcast journalist? I guess he is probably, right? Like uh, James Cridlin is a podcast historian uh, he calls himself a radio futurist or whatever you know uh i don't think about him in the same way that i think about not nick i don't i don't know if nick has any competition on what he does well so there's definitely differing opinions about nick qua in the podcasting space he he definitely elicits uh, some some form of response whenever you mention his name to certain podcasters. Uh, I would say I would put him and James though on the same level in terms of journalists in this particular space. If you're looking for the latest news on what is happening in the podcasting space, you're looking at Nick and you're looking at James. You're reading their newsletters. James does it daily. Nick does it once a week. James covers everybody. Nick tends to sort of focus on New York. Not not Tim. Uh, and he, he focuses on New York to the exclusion. <laughs> well, and and he unapol and he unapologetic unapologetically has said in his letter that that yes. is what interests him and that is why 
that is where the majority of his newsletter focuses. Now, he does tend to stray away from New York from time to time, especially if there's a story that's interesting enough. He has brought on an employee that works with him, Caroline Crampton, I believe is her name, and she is based in the UK, so that has a lot of London uh, in in terms of the podcasting, in terms of a specific area that she covers. Uh, but good or bad, right or wrong, whatever, Nick has been around for five years, and kudos to him for continuing to do it, and kudos for him to get it. I mean, honestly, he's he's reported scoops in this industry that we wouldn't have heard otherwise if it wasn't for well, Nick his, being around. His was the first rumblings on the Gimlet Spotify thing, that, that honestly, his reporting is, is what I think hastened that deal in retrospect, like... That word broke faster than I think either party imagined it was going to, and all of a sudden they had to kind of do something or say something about it because everybody was talking about the fact that they were working behind the scenes. Yeah, and for me, no, I don't agree with everything that Nick writes about in his particular newsletter, and uh, the very last frustration, quote-unquote, that he shares, I think will be a good one for us to discuss when we get to that to the end of this particular article, but... For me, uh, I find him as a valuable resource in just keeping up on what's happening in the industry and understanding that it is a tinted window that I read his newsletter through, and it is going to be a tinted window on a very specific area of the podcasting world. Uh, so what is this uh, article, Jay, that he's put together? The, uh, the headline is... These are some of the problems that podcasters are most frustrated by. But how did he put this list together? Uh, over the past month, he's been doing a call to action at the end of his newsletter. Hey, write in. What are you most frustrated by in regards to podcasting? And it could literally be about anything. And uh, he compiled a list of responses. He mentions here that most people chose to remain anonymous. And thus, uh, none of these are uh, assigned to any in particular person. Uh, they are all anonymous uh, answers to that particular question. What are you most frustrated by in regards to podcasting? And it could literally be uh, everything from your particular podcast, the industry as a whole, advertising, etc. We're going to get into all of it. Some of this stuff, and, and he even mentions as he wrote this, he said... Every, he doesn't necessarily agree with every response that he presented, but he presented it nonetheless. Uh, so that's something to take into account, too. He's not necessarily agreeing with what everybody has written here. He is just presenting the results of his findings from from this particular poll question. Uh, the full article is linked in the show notes, as always. Go check it out there. Read it on your own if you're that kind of person. But uh, absolutely, we're going to break down the things that we felt like were commentatable along the way, too. Um, Jay, where do you want to start? Well, these first three here... Um, uh, I think we can lump together. I think this is the first lumping 
Uh, the rise of big money podcast companies and their treatment of content creators, it harkens back to the way major labels took advantage of young artists in the 70s, bad contracts explicitly designed to take advantage of podcast creators who don't have the resources or knowledge to fully understand every detail of the contract. No aspect of the industry is immune. The saturation of the market by VC-funded companies that never need to make a profit, squeezing out anyone who is trying to run normal business, you know, like every industry now. That podcasting has gone Hollywood. There's such an opportunity to stay true and fresh, unique and genuine, without requirements and how-tos along with celebrity endorsement. <laughs> I'm already laughing. There's way too much, like, I deserve this opportunity. Podcasting is my opportunity. It's just as much your opportunity as it is Hollywood's opportunity. It's just as much your opportunity as it is the guy who's got the money's opportunity. And I hate to tell you this, millennials, but the dude who's got the money has got the power. That goes for everything. That's sort of when we started this podcast, I mentioned my whole thing whenever I've read any article uh, about podcasting is follow the money. Why, why is this being reported? Why is this going in this particular direction? Why does this make sense? And it always has to do with the money. If you don't seem to understand that, then that is a you problem. And I, and I hate to sort of break it down in that way. And I hate to blame it all on millennials, but I mean, that really is quintessentially the stereotype of millennial wine. Well, so the, the, the comparison to the, the music industry in particular is interesting to me. Um, and and also interesting in that they're not wrong, but there was a reason why the the record labels had such power, and even in today's world, continue to have power. It's because they offer certain things. The same thing is true to a smaller degree in the publishing world. Jay, if you have talent or a book or an album or a song or whatever that people want that big companies think has value, yes, they will come to you and offer to give you a big chunk of that value immediately in exchange for what? A percentage of the value on an ongoing basis, right? They're going to keep a big percentage of your value from now on, but you're going to get some of it now. You're going to get a, a royalty check right away. You get a, you know, when you, when you sign a, um, a deal to write a book, they pay you a couple hundred thousand dollars in a lot of cases now, today, before there is a book. That's against the royalties that you'll make long term. Same thing happens here in podcasting. You as an individual could pull an Aaron Mankey and start your own show and do your own thing and bankroll it yourself. And then whatever revenue, whatever value accrues because of your content, you get it all. Or you could say, I have a thing and I know that people are noticing that it has value. Let me cash some of that out now. It's just a calculation. And we as creators need to be smart about it. We need to go into it with eyes open. It, it, the bad, contract, bad contracts that take advantage of people, those can only take advantage of you if you don't read that contract or if you don't pay attention to what the terms are, right? Like, yes, corporations want to make value for themselves, not you. That's true. That's always been true. It just, uh, again, I, it's, it's, it's this mindset of, I deserve this. This is my right that you should just give it to me. Like that's a, that's not life, well, dude. 
but like, we have bro? like podcasting like, does it is all of those things jay the thing that's not guaranteed is the audience right you have to have an audience right. before there's any value there other than aesthetic value your content we want it all to exist and podcasting makes it available even if you have zero budget there are media hosts out there that will take you on and host your content for free we've talked about them in the past the doors are open. This is everyone's opportunity. The 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 follow-up, though, is we're not guaranteed revenue from that opportunity to create. Um, the next comment, we don't need to read the whole thing, but the last line is, there's so much disjunct between working, to, working conditions and the general public-facing, quote-unquote, golden age vibe. And, and it sort of goes to everything that we're talking about here. And, and I'm curious, how many different places of employment are there when we're talking about working conditions, Joel? There aren't that many. Uh, when we're talking about publishing houses, unless this is a radio person. Uh, and then it's more than just podcasting because the radio industry treats their employees like Well, garbage. I will say, even if you're a freelancer... Um, I mean, that's not exactly – we don't think about working conditions in the same way that this statement sort of implies there. But the freelance opportunities, if you want to do that high-level NPR-style, public radio-style production, whether that be as a host or a, or a, a producer or, you know, maybe you're a Foley artist, you know, and you want to do the sound effects and that that's your goal in life. Well, probably your options are sort of limited as far as who you can work for, which means that it's a buyer's market, not a seller's market, right? For labor. So so that that's mm-hmm. a that's a problem of the market. That's not a that's a problem of where we are as an industry. As this industry grows, as it absorbs the rest of the audio world, well, those conditions will likely change, and it might be less of a buyer's market and more of a seller's market as far as labor is concerned. But I sort of doubt it, because I got news for you. It's never been that way in radio, has it, Jay? Radio's been around right. for 100 no, years. That's... Even today, there's 15 dudes younger than you that are beating down the door asking the general manager for your job, basically everywhere you work. The, the competition in any of the media fields, uh, in TV and film, you know, there's a reason why you hear from the same exact people over and over again. It's because they look at their success rate, and if you don't have, a, if you don't have anything to work off of in terms of any sort of experience beforehand, then you're going to be working for dirt cheap, and then you got to work your way up through the ladder. I, again, though, this is life. Like... Our parents, I never heard my dad, who was just here visiting for, for two weeks, you know, talking about, you know, his career and the way his career progressed. I mean, he had to move to different states for his employment. Like, it just, again, it, there seems to be this odd mentality ar- around employment these days. And and I do see a lot of it coming from the entrepreneur type lifestyle of the oh i can i can go in and do this and i can make a quick buck and you know and then i deserve to have this particular job and it just doesn't work that way like it's never worked that way you got to go in you got to grind and you got to pay your dues and you've got to prove yourself and prove your value or come with value so that you ultimately get what you actually do deserve. And even then, 
sometimes you don't get what you deserve. Well, and that leads to the next uh, point, the emphasis on scale, you know, that oh, everything God. is not scalable, nor should it be, which is uh, he's Nick's got that highlighted. And I agree with him. Um, you know, he says it's not it's a broader issue than just the media. Our entire economy is is built on this weird place where every company has to show massive growth no matter what their current profits are. I, I mean, the, the thing that I think about all the time because it's a company I follow, Jay, is Apple. It doesn't matter that Apple owns, you know, 95% of the, of the profit in the mobile phone industry and the mobile phone industry is the biggest industry that anyone's ever seen. But if they don't show this quarter that their services revenue grew by 25%, their stock's going to go down. What sort of incentives are we building in our entire society right now that everything has to have this hockey stick, uh, uh, continual, hmm. perpetual growth? Things are not everything is like that. Some things are for a while. Some things in some times can have that kind of explosive nature. But most things are slow. One by one, you know, you, it's it's person to person. That's the way that these things spread and grow. Your individual show and podcasting as a medium, both of them, not necessarily scalable, quote unquote. Oh God, the, it's the the word I hate the most is, is scale. I'm a hundred percent on board with the whole idea of everything has to scale uh, because I hate it. I hate the word. I hate the whole meaning behind it. Um. This next one is interesting to me. I'm frustrated that an increasing number of creators are choosing to take the um, parentheses relatively easy cash and putting so much of their content behind paywalls and on specific platforms. Of course, I understand the appeal and concede that it's hard to get mad about individual people and teams getting paid for their hard work and lending their voices and good names to the medium, but I can't help but feel that each otherwise appealing show I learn about whose access is restricted in some way moves us further away from the broad accessibility I've long found such an appealing aspect of the podcast ecosystem. And I think this person pretty much answered their own question. Like, gotta get paid, man. Like, if this person finds that the most success they're going to have in regards to making a living off of their podcast is by putting it behind a paywall, then so be it. We had this conversation on this show a while back about uh, podcasters who created an ad-free experience uh, on on Patreon, and then their audience got mad because they were no longer getting the free, you know, the the codes for the advertisers on the podcast, so they couldn't. It's like you don't understand what advertising means. Like the whole purpose of the advertisement is to get you to purchase the product. So I think there, there again, this is one of those things where. Can't fault the dude for making a buck off of the work that he's putting out there or the lady. And and honestly, I think this is again one of those, well, if you like the show that much, then you gotta you gotta support the show. You gotta pony yeah. up and, and help that I, I creator it's out. The, it's the maturation of our industry in some ways. You know what's weird, Jay? I don't know why this had never occurred to me, but it's like the introduction of cable television. Right? HBO mm. Mm -hmm. didn't kill TV. ESPN didn't kill TV. As a matter of fact, it made it more powerful. It made it a more dominant medium in American culture. And I think that can be the case for this premium level of podcasting, 
when you have shows that are so high quality and because I think there's enough companies out there chasing it now, some of these will hit. Some of these will become genuine successes, which means that there will be a new group of people that are sampling podcasting at all. And that will filter down. Um, now, the one the one question is, this, this next point I think is kind of interesting. Lots of focus in terms of news and infrastructure on large and well-funded podcasts and a bit on the just starting out or hobbyist end of the spectrum, but very, very little on mid-range offerings that are not part of well-established net- networks. Boy, last week you talked about the invisible middle class of podcast listeners, Right. But podcast <laughs> producers, I think, and Jay, that's it's one thing that you and I try so often to speak to is that middle class of podcast producer because I think that's who our audience is. When when people give me feedback today, I was talking to Jason Bryant, you know, uh, via Facebook Messenger. He says he loves to listen to us and our commentary. Uh, Drew Ackerman, we we're going to get to his sponsorship here in a minute. You know, folks like that. I that's the middle class of podcasting. They've got successful businesses in their own right. They've been podcasting for a long time. They're not giant shows. They don't have huge networks. Maybe the normal quote unquote average Joe or Jane doesn't know who they are. And nobody's talking about how they could grow their audience or how to like take the next step for them or what their issues are, et cetera, et cetera. That, that is a real issue, man. I, I, I completely agree with that. Um, and I don't know what the answer is to it either. Other than I think long-term we're okay. Because, again, I look at TV, uh, radio to a lesser degree, because I, I think it, it, podcasting in a lot of ways is going to follow the TV medium. Uh, we're already doing that with the accelerated nature of these premium offerings. You know, radio didn't do that for basically 100 years before you introduced satellite radio. It was forever, right? Um, this is a stratification. But I don't think that's a bad thing, Jay, because in the end – what have we been talking about? People listening to it on YouTube, on Spotify, wherever, they still call it a podcast. They're going to do the same thing whether they're paying for it or not, right? Which, again, raises our content. It'll raise the expectations, too. If you're, if you're doing your podcast into a tin can, uh, you're recording a phone call in front of your microphone, boy, it's not going to cut it anymore. People are going to expect more, even for hobbyist podcasts. But if you're in that middle class, if you're already doing the things that you need to do, I think your content is going to continue to find new people on a on a daily basis, on a yearly basis, as as those folks filter down and they're like, "Hey, there's great content out here." I didn't. I thought podcasting was all like two guys talking about the latest iPhone update. You know, it's not. It's way more than that. Well, even the two dudes that you just mentioned in Jason Bryant and Drew Ackerman, think about what their podcasts are. Jason Bryant focuses on college mm. wrestling. That is a very niche spectrum. Uh, you know, people that are into it are really into it. They're they're super passionate. Uh, but the the overall piece of the podcasting listening universe pie uh, for college wrestling podcasts is very, very small. Drew Ackerman has uh, a fairly large audience. Uh, I'm actually a surprisingly large audience, I would say. I was surprised to hear some of his numbers. And honestly, it's because he puts out great content and it gets out there. But again, his whole idea, his whole concept of his show was to help people fall asleep, <laughs> which again, you, 
what advertiser wants to know <laughs> that the audience that's listening to this is ultimately going to fall asleep at some particular point in time during the content. I wonder what his re-listening numbers are. That's a that's a stat that we don't get. I wonder how many people fall asleep to his show and then wake up the next morning and listen to the show again to not huh. fall asleep. You know, I'd, that's a very good point. Um, I mean, if they, yeah, that's entirely possible that you both, you, you, you actually use it for its its purpose, but also want to take in the content that he's offering uh, consciously. Hmm. I've never, I need to ask him about that. Um, Jay, the next frustration, and this is highlighted, I like it, not getting paid on time. Now, I think the feedback that Nick's getting here comes from ad sales, right? And the fact that the ad agencies yes. tend to be a net 60 or net 90 sometimes, which means you know, you run an ad today. It's even longer than that And it's sometimes. not a month. It's not two months. It's three months or four months before you get that check. And and again, you're right. Some ad agencies will push that longer. But, like, that is incredibly frustrating. If you're in the radio business, if you're in the publishing business, you might just get used to it. Basically, you, you're going to have to go with some startup cash. And then once the checks start coming, you just assume they're going to be consistent from then on. Um, but like, that is what he's talking about there. I will say, I hear that, uh, from podcast editors and producers and different people that work in the podcast, uh, industry, you know, for clients, they say, man, I feel like I I don't want to be a bill collector, but I got to chase people down. I, if you go to my website and you look at any of my services, you have to click a PayPal button before you get the service. I'm like the cable company, Jay, you come to me, you tell me what Mm. you want. You pay me for it, and then you get it. And the next month, you pay me again, and you get it again. Um, and and once you and I are in a rolling uh, case, maybe we'll let a few days slide by before that next check comes in. But like, it's got to be uh, uh, a preemptive basis for people starting out in this industry. That's what I would highly suggest. Even ad sales, like our direct ad sales for this show. We're going to get to that sponsorship in a minute from Drew. He contacted me, bought the ad sale directly, sent me the money first, then he got the ads. If you're a very small business, if you don't have that runway and you're trying to bootstrap, you need the cash to bootstrap. You got to have boots to to pull yourself up by their straps, right? Mm-hmm. You certainly do. Uh, before we get into some more of the advertisers, two more, and then we can actually talk about our advertiser. The difficulty of reaching larger audiences, while many mediocre podcasts have huge listener numbers, put a pin in that one, uh, it is so hard to get people to know my show exists. I've tried everything to boost my numbers. It's so hard to promote yourself above the sea of podcasts, especially if you're not a new buzzy show. I have about 60,000 listeners, which was a great number to have in 2016 or 2017 when I was considered a mid-sized show that could reliably get ads. But my numbers have stagnated for years as new shows are cropping up every day with celebrity hosts or major networks promoting them. This, <laughs> You're whining again, but... <laughs> While many mediocre, mediocre podcasts have huge listener numbers, that's your opinion. Like, guess what? Your opinion means diddly squat. When it comes to the fact that that other quote-unquote mediocre podcast has huge listener numbers, guess whose opinion matters when all is said and done? 
the huge yeah. audience, how, not how many yours. Mediocre TV shows get huge ratings, Jay. According to your opinion or mine, like lots, right? Like you don't like lots of TV shows that are popular. I don't like lots of TV shows that are popular. That's inherent in the nature of a subjective medium. Like, yeah, that is, that's a, that's a trash comment. I don't know why Nick even included it. I will say that opinion. Well, here's probably why I included it, Jay. It's prominent. That opinion a, that yeah. my show is so great. All these other shows are trash. Why do they have big audiences and I don't? Secondly, if you have 60,000 listeners, what are you complaining That's about? It's still a great number. Yeah, like unless you're unless you're a celebrity, <laughs> you have about as big an audience as you can hope for in podcasting currently. Like right? What does that put her honestly in the lips and numbers that puts that puts that show in the You're yeah, above the 2%. Come on. Like I just to me, complaining about 60,000... Now, this is where I find there is a disconnect in the way people understand their numbers. Somebody will say, I've got 60,000 listeners. And you go, well, is that per episode or is that your total? Oh, that's the total number that I have since I launched my podcast You know, six months ago. I've had 60,000 listens since then. Oh, how many episodes have you put out since then? So you don't have 60,000 listeners... As a total, when, when, what, that's the thing that drives me nuts when I hear somebody goes, I'm celebrating a big milestone. I've got a million listens today. I've had a million downloads today. And I'm, and I'm always sort of like, great. Guess what? That means diddly poo, <laughs> to use a uh, sports reference. It doesn't mean anything. That means your podcast over a span of time has accumulated a million downloads. That's great. Hey, listen, a million's a, a wonderful number, but it's the per episode number that gives you a more genuine idea of what your true audience is. And even that number is skewed because it's not necessarily the same going from week to week. And obviously you're hoping that it's growing from week to week or whatever your release schedule is. But as Todd Cochran has said numerous times, it is, you want to get an idea of who your real audience truly is? It is the number you get within the first 24 hours of your release. That is the true size of your audience. Anything else beyond that is people that are coming in that are discovering your podcast. But within that first 24 hours, you can usually assume, and again, we all know what assuming does, but... You can usually assume that those are the total number of your true P1 listeners, the people that are subscribed to your podcast. And that is it. So I don't, sometimes I'll hear this. I've got 60,000 listeners. Oh, great. Is that per episode? Oh, no, 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 no. I get six. That's, that's from the time that I started my podcast five years ago. I've got 60,000 listens since then. Oh, well, I hate to tell you, but you do not have 60,000 listeners. Um, so I wonder if some of that is in this here as well. Uh, the, my numbers have stagnated for years as new shows are cropping up every day with celebrity hosts or major networks promoting them. Yeah, that's if if you've got a show that is related to celebrity hosts and, and those networks. Yeah, that's your competition. Like you've got to do better when you say I've tried everything. I guarantee you haven't. Because you want to know what you really got to do when, when you're looking at this and your numbers have stagnated? You've got to do something crazy. You got to change your content. Now, understand, 
if you do have 60,000 listens per episode, you have a ginormous audience that already loves the content that you're putting out there. There's no need to make a radical change. If your numbers have stagnated at that number, then one, you're not doing enough to incite your new audience to share your podcast because you didn't get to 60,000 overnight. And if you did, well, congratulations. The, the other thing that I've started to think about recently, Jay, is like how, how difficult is it to onboard into your content? Right. Depending upon the nature of your show, our show, I feel like is pretty easy week to week to just come in because we're talking about topics. You know, you, you, you learn our characters and personalities as we go. But if you have a fictional drama narrative or something, is is it obvious to new potential listeners where to start and then how to go through your content? Uh, if you have a show that is like a comedy show, but your show is full of in-jokes. I've talked about this several times about my brother, my brother and me, mm. the, the Mabimba Bam boys. Um, they, their show is thick with in-jokes, and it takes several episodes before it makes any damn sense to you. How are you on-ramping your new potential listeners? The things that I think about for this, audiograms are probably great, right? Taking your content and clipping it out into short form, that's really good. Uh, making YouTube clips, turning certain sections, topics, rants, pieces of, okay, if you've got a lot of in-jokes, take the origin of that in-joke, make it a YouTube video, not a fake just the audio in a waveform, but like, Put visuals with it in some fashion to make it interesting to look at and put that up on YouTube. Share it out on all your social channels. And all of a sudden, the in-joke makes sense to the new listener. The Fantasy Focus podcast that I was involved with at ESPN, uh, we ran into this problem all the time as well. We had very, we had a ton of in-jokes uh, that obviously the established audience loved, but did, the established audience didn't want us every season to start explaining what every in-joke meant. We created a glossary on our website. It's no longer there, which is a shame. I don't know why they got rid of it. Um, but we created a glossary. If you have your own website, you can do the same thing. Create a glossary to explain those in-jokes. And now you've created more content for your audience to go and learn and love and share. And it's in a different format, too, which is even better. Jay, one of the current in-jokes of our show is the fact that our sponsorship for this season of Always Listening is brought to you by the Sleep With Me podcast, Andrew Ackerman. But Drew doesn't want us to talk about his podcast, Sleep With Me. He wants me to talk about pogs, Jay. And so we are talking about an individual pog from my library, my own personal collection. Um, the one that I just sent a picture to you, I hope you got it. This combines oh, not only the, the great fad that was Pogs, but also the great fad that was Holograms, Jade. You remember when Holograms were all yes. the rage? So this is a this is a yep. slammer. So it's a heavier Pog. It's thick. Uh, they're generally made of plastic or even metal uh, and or maybe rubber. I had a couple that were actually like, uh, like tire rubber, it felt like. But you throw these down on the board. That's what you would use to smash the other Pogs out of the way. If they cleared the board, then those Pogs were yours. That was the way that you played the game. This 
one is of a holographic skull uh, in the center of a, um, a, a, it looks like a bronze or a gold uh, plastic pog. I loved this one. This is one of my favorite slammers. Uh, you can see the picture in the show notes, by the way. Why are we talking about pogs? Well, it's what Drew wanted me to do. He wanted me to remind you of this phenomenon from the 90s. I had a huge collection personally. If you go back and listen to a couple episodes ago, I tell you the story about how I used to steal them from the store. I'm a real rebel in this fashion. If you have a pog story, I'd really love to hear it. I think Drew would as well. Email me, uh, joel at propodcastingservices.com or email us, alwayslistingpod at gmail.com. How much did this thing cost uh, you? So th- I was trying to think. So like something like this, I think I probably paid like five bucks for, maybe, 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 oh, maybe six God. or seven, but like a really nice slammer would cost you five, six, seven bucks. You could get a whole pack of regular pogs pretty cheaply. And then the, the one caveat to that is, so I have, and I don't think I actually have them. I haven't been able to find them yet. I'm looking for one in particular coming up with some supermodels on it. I bought, um, again, you got to think of the age I was, I was like 11 or 12 the the oh, yeah. uh, Sports Illustrated swimsuit, Some Kathy yes. Ireland. So it was literally. Do you, I can't remember now. It was Kathy Ireland and uh, who's the mole? Um, Crawford, Cindy Crawford, and Cindy there was Crawford. a third one. There were three women on the cover of Sports Illustrated: Kathy, Cindy, and there was another one. Um, this would this would have been in like ninety five, ninety six. Anyway, th- that issue of Sports Illustrated swimsuit uh, issue. Um, I I got and you know here's the other thing too. Pogs was the like official trademarked version. There were unofficial things that everybody made that were just called milk caps. You didn't have to pay anybody to do them. And so literally any bootlegger with a printer would like get the the you know the specs or whatever and would start making these things. So somewhere in like the Galleria in Houston I bought one time a sheet of pogs they popped out of a whole sheet of cardboard and all of them were sports illustrated swimsuit uh models uh, there were images from that that year's issue i doubt very highly that that was an official one i'm still looking for those those will be in an upcoming one but anyway i would love to hear your stories please tell me what your pogs were like if you had any of these or if you remember this phenomenon at all jay keeps making fun of me but i think that's just because of the age difference i think you just missed this phenomenon personally well, I didn't miss the uh, yeah yeah you're darn straight there model phenomenon. I was all what, over did that. You, did you find um, what year that was? It was like like I said, it was like ninety. No, I was looking. I was maybe looking maybe as early as ninety. Getting a lot of Kathy Ireland uh, photos. Something like that. I was a huge Kathy Ireland fan, though. Man, I, I she's always been one of my favorites. Uh, and you know, even now, she's beautiful. She's sweet. She's always had that you know girl next door quality. Big big fan. I'm a big, big fan of Pogs, too. Uh, thank you, Drew, for sponsoring. And by the way, if Women you have are something beautiful. to promote, you don't have to just uh, uh, give us a diversion like Drew did. If you have an event or a podcast yourself or a product uh, that serves podcasters that you'd like to promote, you can do so at sponsor.alwayslisteningpod.com. That's the link to find sponsorship opportunities. I find that the advertisers are consolidating their ad spend with fewer and fewer agencies and fewer and fewer networks, leaving mid-sized networks in a really tough spot. Weak-ass ad sales mm-hmm. across the board. The ads. So many pods have ads that are so, so bad, even pods that should know better. Too many ads in too short a time. Fakey FM radio-sounding ad reads. Ads for extremely evil companies. 
that are in direct conflict with the mission of the pod, even sped up audio sometimes, looking at you, the daily, CPM being the standard for advertising rates, lacks of ways to monetize expensive shows to produce, and by the way, traditional CPM model doesn't take into consideration the quality of the content or cost to make, and there's so much more about advertising. There, uh, there, there's a couple... Uh, Nick sort of highlights their deep dives, so their longer um, complaints about specific ad sales and practices that individuals did when they wrote in um, that take up a little bit more time. But just wanted to highlight just sort of the the anti-ad establishment, and as we've discussed on the show, I really feel like that's an insider, that's a podcaster bubble. Uh, we've seen plenty of research and even mentioned in the super listeners research done by Edison Research just a couple weeks ago. These are super listeners, people that listen to uh, six or seven podcasts a week or listening to hours of podcasts a week. Traditional radio, which we all agree has way too many ads. They say 47% of the super podcast listeners say traditional radio has too many ads. That means 53% said mm. it doesn't have too many ads. Uh, a lot of that ad stuff is not going to apply to most of our audience. I will say the the one point in there that I want to refer to, you know, not enough ways to monetize high quality content, um, expensive shows to produce. That goes back to what we said earlier, Jay. You're not guaranteed the ability to produce your dream fantasy rock opera, right? Like just because I've got an epic right. science fiction movie in my head doesn't mean that that will ever get made. Just because you have a homecoming style podcast in your mind doesn't mean that it will ever get produced. If you can't get companies interested in it on terms that you're acceptable, that, that you find acceptable, then Jay, you got to scale it down and figure out a way to produce it independently. And then you'll know, just like, I mean, look, Kevin Smith made a movie on credit cards one time, right? That paid out okay yep. for him in the end. He's sequelizing it for like the third time in a couple of years. So like, yeah, well, I'm, I'm saying, <laughs> but he took that risk. He took that risk. We're, nobody's guaranteed creative expression. The beauty of podcasting is that it offers you a floor that you can come in and begin your creative expression with literally zero dollars out. That's what we're reminding you of here. And understand what Kevin Smith was able to do too on that. You're specifically referencing yeah. clerks and he, his, all the actors in that movie are buddies of his and those buddies didn't get paid. Uh, they all took that leap of faith with him, and he has since taken care of those people. So it's one of those things where, yeah, sometimes you got to take that leap of faith, and sometimes it doesn't pay off. Uh, I'm sure there are hundreds of thousands of stories of Hollywood people that have gone and created their, you know, their bio, you know, their amazing rock opera, as you put it, uh, and they just never saw the light of day, and they spent all of their life earnings, and they've got nothing now, and they don't have any recourse. And ultimately, again, it comes down to we are in a subjective media. I mean, media. look, hey, that's a place of privilege, right? All throughout human history, it's taken a certain amount of of privilege and 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 uh, resources to be able to be a creative individual. Period. If you're if you're having to struggle for your daily bread or you don't have a roof over your head, you're probably not going to be able to write a play or a movie or or a song or whatever. 
However, on the flip side, podcasting, we're saying, we're reminding you, the floor is zero. The floor is zero dollars, Jay. You can start with nothing. There are no gatekeepers to begin with. If you want to do it on your own, you can. So here is the first medium, in fact, where you can start from nothing. You you can have zero resources. As long as you can get access to a microphone and a computer, go, look, go to your local library. Most of you could podcast from your local library, honestly. Yeah. All these ad sales companies require exclusive agreements, but will promise you nothing in return. This again goes back to the, you have no recourse. If you're looking for ad sales and you can't do it yourself, that's, that's, that, those are their, that's what they say. Try and find an ad company that will tell you, hey, we're going to promise you this and this and this. The problem is there's no ad company that will do that because they can't promise you that they're going to make you this amount of money with this amount of audience. No one can. That's not the way the system works, unfortunately. So, yes, signing an exclusive agreement and getting no promise of anything in return, yeah, it sucks, but that's just the unfortunate way that that things are. And that's something you either have to accept or you have to say, well, I'll just go and do it myself. Um, That's just the way it ends up working. Uh, I know so many people who suffer from opaque sales practices among big sales houses. They produce a show in partnership with companies who tout their sales and marketing expertise only to find as a show is heading to broadcast that virtually no ads have been sold. There's no marketing plan and the CPMs are confusingly low. Some sales houses set low performance quotas across an overwhelming portfolio of properties and the creators are the ones who suffer. Often it seems these sales houses are using their own poor sales performance to artificially bring down the cost of renewal. Example, we only made 50,000 on your show and thus can only offer you half of that for season two. And again, that's just the way that sales work. Sometimes you go in there and they do, if you're working with a big sales house, you have to understand they are operating off of that brilliant word called scale. So if your show doesn't scale, they're on to the next show. They don't care about the you're right. They don't care about the smaller shows. They never will because the smaller shows aren't delivering that return of investment. And that's what they're ultimately looking for. And oftentimes, if your show has underperformed, you have to understand that your show has underperformed. The sponsors don't want to come back to an underperforming show, no matter what size audience you are. The reason why an advertiser comes back is because you performed well. You converted your listeners into buyers of that particular product. And again, this goes back to you don't understand how advertising works. Like people aren't just giving you money out of the kindness of your heart. They're giving you money so that you sell their product to your audience. And if your audience isn't buying, they ain't coming back to give you more money. To take it back to the music label uh, idea that we were discussing earlier, there are these production companies occasionally who give you an outlay and say, hey, your show is worth X and we'll pay you X to make season two. You might be disappointed with the amount of season two that they're offering, uh, you know, the money that they're offering for season two. But Jay, it's not even just about failing to meet your numbers. Look at Netflix, okay? Netflix's formula has been three seasons of any show. Why? Because after the third season, every one of those actors' contracts becomes more expensive to bring back for the fourth season and moving Mm. forward. The show levels up in cost 
but it doesn't necessarily level up in value, does it? Now, there are exceptions. Right. Frankie and, and Grace, or Grace and Frankie, or whatever that show, they've, they've done five or six seasons. I think they trimmed the costs a little bit, and also its audience has grown. So it's the value continues to be there for Netflix. They did House of Cards for like six seasons. Same thing. It was a, it was a marquee show. They were hanging a lot of advertising on it. The audience was continuing to grow even as the price of the show grew. But there comes a time when it ain't worth it anymore. Game of Thrones. A year and a half ago, Jay, Game of Thrones was a license to print money. HBO just canceled a pilot that they had already paid for and made. Not just made, they remade it. They reshot the pilot and re-edited it to get a whole new version of it. Naomi Watts, they paid her a lot of money to be the lead of this whole show. They went, never mind. You know why? Because the value wasn't there. It was going to cost them too much, and the return, they, they saw it. They looked at the books, and they were like, the audience isn't going to be there to justify the expense that we're putting out for this show. I'm sorry. If that creator wants to make that story, he can write it as a novel. It's free to write novels. You might not get it published. (laughs) Guess what? It's free to make podcasts. You might not get it heard. Right? Right. Yep. One other point here that this particular person wrote, uh, most sales departments put zero thought into selling back catalog inventory or adjusting the CPM as download numbers increase. Why is this such a novel concept? They just try to sell their quotas and then move on to the next property in their portfolio, leaving money on the table even when shows are receiving a hefty number of back catalog downloads. To this point, I agree. Uh, This is definitely something that we need to educate our salespeople on, get them to start understanding that there is value in the back catalog. Not only is there value in the back catalog, but there is value that increases during a campaign. Sometimes your audience, oftentimes uh, I would hear about a podcast got sold with this number of impressions promised, and they would deliver on those impressions within the first two weeks of the campaign, but the campaign was bought for six weeks. So now there's essentially four weeks of free advertising for that particular sponsor instead of an increased sum of money going to that particular podcaster for over delivering on the promise and that's just the nature of of sort of the business that we're in sometimes you you can't predict future success based on previous results it's just if you could you would be uh quite rich and you'd probably won the lottery a few times uh there's just no way of doing that but at the same time there should be a clause in any sort of contract like this that would help that particular podcaster out and bring in a little extra revenue from the advertiser and the advertiser should be more than happy to give it. Of course, they're not because they understand the value. This is why this is why a lot of advertisers, a lot of sponsors are against the whole dynamic ad insertion premise because previous to dynamic ads, the Host Red Ad was baked into the show. It lived in the show for the life of the podcast. So if you've got a podcast that, like Serial, that has lived on for five, six, seven years, however long Serial's been around, that's gained more audience that's heard ads that were paid for, but those ads were only paid for a certain period of time. They weren't paid for that audience that came to find that show five years later. And that's sort of where... 
that sort of understanding needs to be that education process needs to happen with our salespeople needs to happen with the sponsors. And that's where, uh, guys like Todd Cochran, Rob Walsh, you big, you big name folks here in the podcasting industry. This is what you need to start hammering your pitchforks on and, and making this sort of thing happen. And I know Todd has done that to a certain degree. The other point is got to understand you got to take the money where you can get it. And if the advertiser goes, I'm not paying for that, then they're not going to pay for it. I am thanking God for the mute button today, uh, Jay. The, we, we might have a whole track of outtakes. It's just my coughs. Um, part two of his list of complaints here involve a lot more personal stuff. Uh, first and foremost, there's several complaints that revolve around the insular nature of the public radio world, the, the sort of very New York-focused aspect of it. That's particularly apt, as we mentioned earlier, for Nick Qua's coverage particularly. And since these were uh, responses direct to him, I'm not surprised to see those. Another thing, though, that you hear or, or that I hear in several of these responses is sort of classism among the creatives. The idea that there is this this group that is the elite uh, public radio producers that come from that tradition. There is the old guard of podcasting, which sort of sits maybe under them, but in a separate group of their own. And then there's all these struggling independent creators that are like, well, how do I ever get into either one of your clubs? Mm -hmm. Uh, I hear a lot of that too. And I try not to be because I would obviously be classified with the OGs. Um, I would think, but I would also hope that I'm not like that. I know, uh, Mark Asquith just recently wrote a blog post about this as well, about how there are a number of podcast hosting companies that don't treat new podcasters very well. They sort of, um, they, they, they're trying to keep podcasting, uh, to be difficult as he worded it, uh, and sort of speak down to newer podcasters, uh, when it should be more about being inclusive. And I try to be as inclusive as I possibly can. There's going to be things when you read stuff like, oh, um, <laughs> uh, no exposure for independent shows. Well, once again, there is exposure. It's not as large as it's going to be for that NPR style podcast, because quite honestly, they've got a ginormous audience. That's the other thing. You know, when I talked about that, that 2% last week, when I broke down those numbers for you, understand NPR's portfolio, their lowest listened podcast is still in the 2% of podcasting, right? There are other podcasts companies out there that have a portfolio. Let's take iHeartRadio for, that's a perfect, that's a perfect example. iHeartRadio has the Ron Burgundy podcast, which ranks way above the 2%, is probably one of the top 10 most listened to podcasts in podcasting. But I guarantee you, iHeartRadio also has some podcasts that are way down in the depths uh, that you've probably never heard of before, but they continue to do it because it's a, a radio station out in the middle of the country that believes in the podcasting phenomenon. And they're just never going to get any sort of traction just because they just don't have an audience for what it is that they're doing. Inaccessibility. 
uh, is something that is mentioned in here too. Transcriptions, particularly the lack of transcriptions. I'm assuming this uh, might be from a, uh, a deaf uh, podcast fan, which I know there are many of. And of course, and, and even if you're not uh, completely deaf, if you're hard of hearing or if you have uh, some auditory issues, there are many reasons why a transcript might be preferred. Um, it is something that I think, uh, I think more podcasters should think about. It's also not free right? That's the thing. Most people, if you want to create a good transcript that either create, that either involves time or money or both. And so that is why the different level of podcasters may or may not provide that all. It may not be necessarily in their priority list. Um, Here's an interesting one for me too. The assumption by podcast folks that everyone in podcasting agrees with them politically and socially. Boy, I... Jay didn't have that assumption at all personally, and I'm kind of surprised that no. it comes off that way. Now, he calls out Hot Pod specifically, this this uh, commenter does, and so it may be that that commenter is only taking in a few different sources, and those sources write from their own um, you know, cultural perspective. But the world of podcasting is huge. In particular, I know that one of the biggest segments of it is religious podcasts, many of those very fundamentally religious podcasts. So obviously you're talking about a conservative segment of the audience there and not just audience, but conservative producers too, right? If you're creating uh, a content that is fundamentalist or, or conservative religiously or politically, then obviously you come from that um, persuasion yourself. Same thing though, Jay, politics and news are huge portions of the podcasting world and the conservative viewpoint is very, very widely represented there. Um, on the flip side though, podcasting is obviously very crunchy. I know there are, you know, lots of, uh, vegan podcasters and, uh, athletics podcasters and, uh, Western philosophy podcasters and Eastern philosophy podcasters, et cetera, et cetera. So this one kind of stumps me. Yeah, I don't, I don't quite understand it either. I think again, it's probably more directed towards, uh, Nick and his coverage of, a particular group of podcasts than than podcasting at large because I would agree with you. I mean, just taking us, you and I have very oh, yeah. different political. Yeah, viewpoints. I mean that's that's literally Extremely what I was going to say, and and we we don't talk about those very often. However, you and I are very upfront about our own biases. We own our own personal biases, and we always admit when we're commentating, we're coming from our own experience and and. Um, you know, ethoses. So, uh, we bring that to it, but, but at the same time, we know that our thoughts are not everyone's. Our experience is not everyone's. Our understanding, our aspect of this industry is not everyone's either. We try to speak to all of them. Yeah, we, we certainly do. This is another one. This is, uh, this is obviously a producer, uh, who, who's written in about the nature of a career and burning out. Uh, saying, uh, selfishly, I'm frustrated about feeling like I'm going to blink and miss my moment in this industry. Despite having been super lucky landing jobs for the past three years in audio marketing, it feels like the industry is spinning so fast, changing, consolidating, adding more players, but also starting to prioritize big voices, that there seems to be a template starting around how to make it in this industry, which consists of teach yourself, freelance your heart out, 
hop from opportunity to opportunity and work through or ignore burnout as you so expertly profiled a few months ago. Again, this was written directly to Nick Qua. And while there are fewer barriers to entry than in other media industries, podcasting still relies on the hustle because we're all pulling quote unquote best practices out of our asses as we try a bunch of things out and make our own ways and possibly failing momentarily in the process, which can be exhilarating. But what if you also value stability like I do? Again, I would tell you, get a job that gives you stability. Like, if you're looking for stability, then get a job that gives you stability. If you if you love what you're doing in podcasting and this is the life that you then this is the life that you have accepted. Like it's just uh, it, this is this is what frustrates me. I get frustrated by the frustrations cuz again, it's a there's there's a I deserve this. Like podcasting should be stable. It's not. You you've highlighted why it's not. You seem to have an understanding of what's actually happening, but you don't seem to have an understanding that that's the way it is. Uh, the 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 greatest thing that Walter Cronkite I think ever did. Uh, as a news reporter, was ended every newscast with, and that's the way it is. Because that's it. That is the way it is. There's no... You can live in a dream world if you want, and, and we can have unicorns and rainbows and all sorts of nifty, you know, chocolate-covered trees, but it's not reality. No, no, it's not. Like, and honestly, it's not... That's not true in almost any industry. Like that's the, but definitely not any creative industry. There's, there's just not that kind of stability. Um, I mean, even if you're okay, the closest I can think of Jay is if you're an artist and you get hired in a big animation house, you know, as just like a, like one of the team and you can work your way up eventually maybe to management of the animation team or something like that. But guess what? If you're not producing good artwork, they're going to fire you. Like there's no, like there's you, you got to come to work every day and you got to hope not to get burnt out on the thing that you love to do. That is the nature of a creative medium. Like you're going to hustle it. You're going to work it too hard sometimes. Now, should some of these big corporations be running themselves differently? That is a different argument to make, but like the nature of the medium is the nature of the medium. That's my thought on that. It feels like this crazy new boom of investor interest in money hasn't actually led to a boom in great new content. Ding, ding, ding! We've got a winner, Joel, because that's absolutely 100% true. Because the investors aren't investing in the content, they're investing in the tech. There was a comment earlier, I don't think we mentioned it, about the tech mindset in podcasting. Because honestly, that's where podcasting evolved from. And there is... A company like Luminary isn't necessarily looking to invest in content as much as they're looking to get a big buyout, right? Their their ultimate goal is for someone to come and purchase them. Spotify, hey, come buy our come buy our company. We've got great tech. There is that I shouldn't have mentioned Luminary example because I have no idea what Luminary's ideas are. But that's the the tech the, that tech mindset exists tremendously even amongst content companies that are out there. And it, it drives me nuts because when there is an influx of money, it doesn't necessarily lead to an influx of great new content. It leads to something altogether different that's not necessarily in the content creator's best mm. interests. Mm. Absolutely. I See, I disagree, though. Like, 
is is the boom in money equaled with a boom in the content? Probably not. However, there are a ton of new shows. There are a ton of new celebrities that have been pulled into the medium for the first time. There are a ton of new companies that are revitalized and fully loaded to produce something new and interesting in the coming months and years. Like, it's a it's a buildup. And some of it still hasn't paid off, I think. But, I mean, I have found a bunch of new... Here's one. Here's one example. 1619. I've been listening to the 1619 Project. That podcast is amazing, and it wouldn't have happened two years ago, probably. Not in that format anyway. It would have been a YouTube series or something. Um, But it's great in podcasting, and it is really high-quality content that is part of this new investment into the medium. Well, I mean, maybe maybe there's space to grow there. There's a lot of complaints about there being too much true crime content out there, irresponsible true crime content. I mean, that's going to happen in any growing medium you're going to find. People are going to try and copy what's successful, and true crime is hot, and it's very successful. And irresponsible true crime, I mean, that just comes down to us as an industry trying to police that sort of thing. Uh, and understand. And, and I think... A perfect example of this was the plagiarism, you know, the uh, reporting that happened just a few months ago. I think that's a great example of the industry policing ourselves, sort of making sure that people understand, hey, uh, there are some people that are trying to present their content as original content when, in fact, uh, they are just stealing it from another podcaster. Um, I think that's very important. And, And mind you, this is coming from two guys that are reacting to an article that was posted on the internet. And <laughs> we're presenting you our original thoughts and opinions and reactions to this particular article. But the 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 glut of the content of this particular show was all done by but Nick But also, Qua. neither us nor Nick is... We've given him the credit. Neither us nor Nick is uh, saying that anybody killed anybody. <laughs> That's also true. <laughs> um, the, the final group of complaints, Jay, all have to do basically with one thing, which is leadership and and kind of oversight, mm. which is an, a complaint that I saw earlier in the, the, the deep dive that you mentioned um, where the guy was kind of frustrated or the, the person was kind of frustrated by missing his moment in the industry. Um, I, I see a lot like, well, I need somebody to show me the ropes. I wish that I had a, a you know, a supervisor who understood podcasting. I keep hearing these people from radio say, oh, well, I've been essentially podcasting for 20 years. Radio experience isn't podcast experience. And that's true. Uh, It's not exactly apples to apples. All of this comes down to, I want to learn. And it doesn't seem like there are that many people that are available to teach me. Guess what, friend? You're in an industry that's less than 20 years old. There aren't that many people with real experience to teach you. <laughs> the ones that have it, the Dave Jacksons of the world, the uh, the Dan Carlins of the world, the um, uh, Dan Dan hadn't been doing it that long. Uh, who, who was the, uh, the the bitterest pill? Uh, what's his name? Well, yeah, you, Dan Class. Uh, 
I was waiting for I was waiting to see how long you got to t- yeah, okay. saying but my all name. All of these people <laughs> like, that I'm talking Joel. about, though, have day jobs. They're all busy all day. They're not available yes. in a management role to just guide you through the, the industry. Our industry is not that far along yet. Your children's children, when they come into podcasting, might have a job like that where they come on as an intern and they become a journeyman and then they're in a you know or an apprentice and then a journeyman and 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 then eventually a master or whatever <laughs> like that may be where we get to we ain't there yet Padna uh I would like to uh point out if you're listening to this show then you yeah. found a great place to learn <laughs> like that's that's the whole point of this particular show that's the whole point of a Dave Jackson show that's a whole point of an Evo mm. Terra show that's a whole point of a lot of us. That there are a number of us that are doing it, and we're doing it as best we can. But as you mentioned, we have day jobs. And my day job is specifically to be that person at my particular company where I'm at right now at Locked On. That is my job. My job is to help teach the talent that I am working with, the experience that I have picked up over the last 15 years of podcasting. And yes, a bulk of those years were at a radio company and I had to deal with supervisors that had no clue what podcasting was about. And quite honestly, I still think they need some help on that regard. But that is my opinion. <laughs> and quite honestly, it's your opinion too. And it comes down to understanding not everyone's going to think of a podcast the same way that you are. Uh, not everyone's going to have the same idea about what a podcast should be as you are. And again, if you're working for someone... You have to make sure that what it is that you're doing is tailored to what they want or you're not going to have that job for much longer. Yeah, it's – yeah, I just think it's a non-issue, honestly. Like I I think these complaints are because of a lack of understanding about – where we are and the moment that we're in. And honestly, Jay, like I'm excited to be in an industry that's this new. You know, Nick Qua has been here for five years. Always listening has been around for a little over five years now, by the way. And that makes us some of the oldest fixtures in this industry. That's cool. That's a good place to be. Is it unstable? Yes, it is. Is it a little uncomfortable if you're out here trying to make it your living? Yes. Yes, it is a little uncomfortable from time to time. Jay, have you ever felt uncomfortable living in the podcasting industry? <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, yes. Yeah. So, like, oh, yes. that that's the nature of it, folks. And if what you need is stability, if what you – and there's nothing wrong with having a hobby. That's my final point that I want to make, Jay. All of these complaints – come from people that don't want podcasting to be their hobby. I understand that desire. But if your complaints overcome your drive to do the it, desire. then you need to reassess your priorities and you need to put things back in order. You can live your life and you can make your money in lots of different ways that are much more stable and consistent and easy and, and less fraughtful, et cetera, et cetera. And then bring your passion and your creativity to your after hours. Work should only be eight or nine hours a day anyway, Jay. And after that, you got lots of time to do something else. That's I'm saying it's okay to have a hobby. Desire is a want. It's not a need. Uh, And you got to sort of understand that and embrace it. And if, like you mentioned, if your desire is burning that brightly that that you need to have things done in a certain manner, you're going to find the ways to make sure that your desire is fulfilled. Uh, and if it's not, 
just like you said, uh, then it, then you're not going to reach your ultimate goal there, and you're going to have to come to an acceptance at that particular point. The last one here, and I, I thought this was very important, and I definitely wanted to share it here, Joel, because I also mm. teased it at the top. The podcast industry has no real critical arm. Hot Pod cannot be both industry rag and arbiter of taste. Having come from another medium, it is shocking to me that there is not a wall between the two. In TV or film, the folks who write the critiques, TV and movie reviewers, are not also the people who are writing about all the industry scuttlebutt and prognosticating about future business moves. It would be anathema to have the two mix. I'm so proud I said that word right. Currently, the way Hot Pod is set up, there's absolutely no objectivity, or at least there's the heavy appearance of subjectivity. And the Hot Pod Summit, it reeks of pay to play. Who's to say that you won't positively review shows that pay to come to the summit or enter the lottery and negatively review the shows that choose not to engage in the summit? It doesn't matter what the intention is. It matters how it is viewed and how it lands. And for many people in the podcast world, or at least the rarefied world of prestige podcasts, the lack of firewall is problematic. Perhaps because Hot Pod isn't underpinned by journalistic ethics, you don't see a problem with being both the industry reporter and industry reviewer. But those of us who have slogged in the journo trenches for years see something troubling about this. Also, we know we aren't here close we aren't anywhere close to a mature industry because every review that comes out is breathlessly is breathless in its positivity. There are no bad reviews, perhaps because Hot Pod needs to be on the maker's good side because they are also the sources of the industry news. And so my biggest frustration is that it's very hard to tell who to trust in terms of industry reporting and critique of the medium because the lines aren't clear and an honest appraisal of this by Hot Pod would be welcome. Nick left that uncommented on, but I'm applaud Nick for including that particular criticism in all of this because it does it's a hundred percent accurate of the way that people view hot pod we talked about it right off the top yes of the show. no you're absolutely right and that and the commentator is absolutely right too except that I'll say this here's my opinion on it I don't like critics I don't I don't like critics and I don't I don't mm. I don't need them uh, I have liked a few film critics in my life because they approached their critique as more of film appreciation. Uh, I think there is a way to do it and a way not to do it. And I've never enjoyed people who um, write for the public in a way that is scholarly, right? If we were talking about an actual, like a PhD class on podcasting or something, then we can tear it apart as you would a literary work. You know, we're going to discuss the allusions and origins of uh, the inspirations for Milton or for Shakespeare or something. Okay, fine. We can do that for Gimlet's shows as well if you want to. But to do that in a newspaper or to do that in a website where your average Joe and Jane are going to read it and what they're really looking for is, will I like this and should I listen to it? I, I think those two things are, are incongruous and uh, there are too many people who call themselves critic and what they want to be is a literary reviewer or, or some sort of scholar and there isn't a public market for that. So I devalue the necessity of critique almost completely. To to that degree, I would agree. I would also add, though, to what this particular uh, person has written in to Nick is James Cridlin, who we mentioned that I believe is on the same level. And 
he has at the end of every pod news newsletter that is out there the list of advertisers that have you know that are supporting him and it's quite numerous and if you understand that he's getting 19 or 9 dollars a month from each and every one of those you can quickly add up how much money he's making from that particular newsletter and it's nothing to just sneeze at uh i've often questioned james and his reporting in that newsletter would he report on negative things. Early on, I have written him because early on in his newsletter's life, he would present articles that had bad advice in them. And I was like, James, you know better than this. You know that this is a bunch of bull honky and it doesn't deserve to be featured in your newsletter. And he just, the way that he defended it was, I am just reporting. Like this, I am just, this is, this is an article that is available and I'm presenting it as an article that is available. It is up to you to make that determination as whether it's good or bad. He's done a lot less of that now. He's definitely, and I think a lot of that has to do with his involvement in the space and his understanding of his importance to the space to help it continue to grow. And recently, he has been on a Libsyn tear. I don't know if you've noticed this, Joel, but I, I also included this in our show notes. Um that I wasn't necessarily going to bring up today, but now that I went on it, I might as well. But he was one of the first to point out the unsettledness in the Libsyn board. Uh, he was also the one that pointed out uh, when reading Terms of Service that Libsyn does not make it easy for podcasters to monetize their shows on Libsyn without expressed <laughs> written consent by Libsyn. It's right in their Terms of Service. And recently... <laughs> Uh, in the last week, he wrote, caution, Libsyn achieved IAB certification in August, but that doesn't mean you'll get access to those numbers. We've been alerted by a number of podcasters that basic Libsyn plans do not give access to IAB certified statistics. In September 2017, the company claimed, quote, all users would get, quote, more accurate download numbers. And though they may dip a little, they will, however, be IAB standard. Um. I have yet to see a response from Libsyn, and I have yet to see a correction from James in the Pod News newsletter. That is, and again, all the credit to James because Libsyn is a is an advertiser of the Pod News newsletter, and I just wonder what's going on there. And I leave it at that. I um. Yeah, that's to James's credit. You're absolutely right. That's to James's credit. And and on the the specific note of criticism that um, uh, Nick Qua had gotten there, uh, James doesn't really do reviews of podcasts, does he? That's not a thing that he ever really personally does. Anyway, he might have posted an article or a news story about some sort of criticism of a podcast, but he doesn't actually write that, does he? I don't ever remember reading a a James Cridlin critique. No, I don't believe James Cridlin has actually done critiques of individual. So that would shows. be an example of separating that out. He does offer. Out. He does offer, though, at the end of his newsletter, new shows that are available for you to listen to, sort of like a recommendation mm. list, mm. if you will. Um, some of that is sponsored content, um, and it, it it says that it's specifically sponsored content. Others of it are just shows that he has picked or have been submitted to him. Um, as shows for you to perhaps go and enjoy. Well, Jay, 
I, uh, I'm so glad that we made the time for this article because, honestly, it was a good one. It, we've got a long show here for you today. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Um, I don't love everything that Nick puts out, but his place in the industry is worth noting, and uh, he does do a good job with his newsletter generally, um, and his opinion does matter. He is a tastemaker in a lot of ways, and so it's interesting to note uh, what his audience is frustrated by here and how that might relate. Maybe we gave an answer for a few of those people. If you're listening, and had some of these frustrations yourselves. Hopefully, uh, we've given you some actionable advice today. Jay, if they're a college sports podcaster, they want to get in touch with you for some of that oversight and guidance that you might be able to offer through the Locked On Sports Network. How would that happen? And I should mention, there were a number of people that reached out to me uh, directly, and I have brought on, and they are now under my tutelage at the Locked On Podcast Network. So, uh, it dreams can come true, and I can make those dreams happen. Uh, Pod Vader at lockedonpodcasts.com, or you can reach me on Twitter at the real Pod Vader. My DMs are open, so you can uh, message me there. By the way, if you're wondering what the title of the Hot Pod newsletter this week, Festivus for the Rest of Us, is in reference to, uh, Festivus is the fake holiday invented by the folk good writers over at Seinfeld. Uh, that show from the 90s about nothing. Uh, it's the airing of mm. the grievances, uh, which I uh, I thoroughly enjoyed. I reference. got a lot of problems with you people, and I'm going to tell you about them. Uh, you can find me at propodcastingservices.com on uh, Twitter at The Rogues Life or at podcasting underscore pro for my uh, business account. Uh, until next week, we have been your hosts. I'm Joel. I'm Jay, and I have to say, just like the men on film, this show hated it in a Z formation. And we are always listening. Always Listening is a proud member of the Two Guys and a Rogue Network. You can find all of our past episodes, including more than 100 podcast reviews, at alwayslisteningpod.com. In Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. For help on your podcast, visit propodcastingservices.com. Our theme song is Enough from Bethany Raver.
two guys and a rogue. I'm one guy. I'm the other. And this is The Network.